Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Ask someone to name a famous Christian music artist, and they'll probably name off some of the big timers, like Amy Grant, CeCe Winans, or Kirk Franklin. Ask if they knew that Nashville was the hub of contemporary Christian music, and they may be a bit befuddled. The Christian music scene has been here for decades, and it continues to help shape the sound of our city. How did the genre make Nashville its home? Later this hour, we'll talk with industry execs, musicians, and legendary producers of the genre. But first, five former Memphis police officers have been fired and charged in the death of Tyree Nichols, who died in the hospital three days after the officers severely beat him during a traffic stop. The body cam footage was released Friday, and protests have taken place through the weekend. Here with an update on how the community is reacting is WKNO reporter Katie Reardon joining us from Memphis. Katie, thanks for being with us again. Hi, nice to speak to you. Good to have you with us. So, you know, as I mentioned, five officers were fired Friday, the same day the body cam footage came out. And we've got some breaking news. Now a sixth officer has been suspended, Preston Hemphill. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, that's right. So this has been a, a very fast moving story with with a lot of moving parts, um, hard to keep up with. Uh, but yeah, uh, MPD confirmed that the sixth officer has been, quote, relieved of duty. Um, he'd been on the force since 2018, um, and he's undergoing an internal investigation. Uh, MPD wouldn't really say much more than that, said that they would uh, share information um, as the investigation continues. Uh, but uh, the officer's Defense attorney put out a statement that he he confirmed that this officer was one of um, those involved in the initial stop of Tyree Nichols. So if if those who have watched the video recall, there it's in four parts. And the first video, the body cam footage, belongs to this officer. Mm-hmm. And um, the defense attorney says that this officer was never present at the second um, stop of Mr. Nichols, where the severe beating takes place. Now, You know, the five officers were part of the Scorpion unit. Their charge was to tackle street crime. That unit has since been disbanded. What statements has the police chief in Memphis made about the Scorpion unit and the police department? Right. So uh, the local police chief, uh, Chief C.J. Davis, she initially had called for an independent investigation of this unit. But then over the weekend, she announced that after meeting, um, after both hearing from Mr. Nichols' family and also their defense attorneys who called for this unit to be disbanded. And she also said that she spoke with remaining members of the unit and that uh, it was the best decision for everyone to disband this unit. So that was announced on Saturday. Protesters had also been calling for that. Um, And so presumably an independent um, investigation of the unit uh, will continue to proceed. But that's sort of what we know about the the status of the unit at this time. Of course, protesters um, have also been saying, you know, nationally um, that that other departments need to take a look at their their um, units that are similar to this. Now, let's talk about the footage, the video footage. Not everyone has seen it. And authorities in Memphis, they took special measures to communicate that the video contains gruesome violence. As best you can, can you describe what happened in the video? 
Sure. Um, and so, uh, you know, in full transparency, I've only seen the video a couple times and it's a lot, as I, as I said, for those who've seen it, they released it in four parts. It includes, um, you know, three, three, uh, uh, body camera footage and then one, one footage that is from a, um, from a, a poll that sort of captures the second incident. But, um, the, the first stop where, where Mr. Nichols is, um, allegedly pulled over for reckless driving. Um, you see three officers that are that are attempting to get him out of his car. They seem really aggressive. They're cursing at him. Um, Mr. Nichols appears uh, not to be, you know, uh, resisting their commands. He, he he tells them that he's, he's just trying to get home, tells them that they're doing a lot right now. Um, you know, they're telling him to get on the ground. Um, eventually, uh, he's he's pepper sprayed and one of the officers deploys a taser. Um, at which point uh, Mr. Nichols is uh, seemingly is able to break free and he takes off running. Um, and then in the second video, it's this footage from um, the sur surveillance footage from the poll. Um, it doesn't start sort of with the officers tackling him, but you see a group of officers who are um, who are beating Mr. Nichols. They're they're striking him, they're kicking him. One of them uses a baton. Um, this goes on for, for about three minutes. And uh, and then another officer um, appears, you know, several minutes later, and it appears like he he also um, uh, kicks Mr. Nichols. And then, you know, as this as this video footage proceeds, uh, several other officers appear on scene, um, as does it as it appears to be medical personnel. Um, so again, I, I just want to be transparent. I've I've seen it, you know, a couple times, and and over you know the next couple of days, I'm I'm sure we will all be. Um, dissecting this sort of frame by frame uh, with with more detail. Well, upon your initial viewing of the video, what really stood out to you? Yeah, I think a lot of people were struck by. I think we had all been prepared um, uh, from by officials. A lot of their statements, you know, they used really uh, old words to describe this: appalling, sickening, um, horrific, uh, you know, gruesome. And so I think everybody was 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 preparing for that. Um, but I think we were also preparing just to see five officers. At that point, it had just been announced that five officers had been fired and had been charged with second degree murder, among other crimes. And so I think a lot of people were were struck by um, there appears to be other officers um, on the scene. The the sheriff's department announced on Friday that they that two of their deputies are are under an internal investigation. And the Memphis Fire Department has also announced that that two of their initial responders are also in, under internal investigation who who appear on video. Now, you covered protests over the weekend. How's the community holding up? Yeah, um, people are really are really galvanized by this. Um, you know, there's there's been a, a wide a wide range of of, of sentiment. Um, there's there's anger, there's outrage. There's sadness, and there's also just, I think, a, a lot of just disbelief. A lot of people, um, you know, I, I spoke to a, a local faith leader here who's actually going to host Mr. Nichols' funeral on Wednesday, and, you know, he's been counseling his parishioners, and he said a lot of them that he's spoken to have just really struggled to come up with words um, that they, uh, that they, you know, they, they see themselves and in, in Mr. Nichols and, and sort of that humanity, um, you know, as he appears on video, just trying to tell these officers that he's trying to go home. Um, he's calling out for his mother. 
Um, so yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people are hurting. Um, and, you know, and, and, and speaking to Reverend Turner, uh, you know, he, he, his advice was, uh, was, um, for people to give themselves grace and to sit with those emotions. And, and then when the time feels right, then, uh, potentially channeling that into, to taking action and, and, um, you know, demanding some sort of, uh, long, long-term change. Um, definitely protesters have, have been out. There's another protest uh, planned today at 4:30 in Shelby Farms, which is is quite symbolic. Uh, Mr. Nichols loved this uh, Shelby Farms. Uh, for those of you not in Memphis, it's a it's a big natural recreational space, and um, Mr. Nichols had uh, uh, often gone there to to take photos of sunsets. Um, and so uh, it is in, in symbolic that today's planned protest will be will be held there. You know. On that line, there have been memorials and vigils set up to honor Tyree Nichols. You know, what have the people who knew him, what have they been saying about who he was as a person? Right. Uh, Mr. Nichols was was very beloved. His family and friends have, have been very adamant in, in, um, in, in showing that to people and, and talking about him in, in very loving terms. He was a very beloved coworker. Um, he was a father, a brother, a son. Um, he was very close to his mother. Um, she's spoken sort of at length um, about their special bond. Tyree, uh, Tyree Nichols had her name tattooed on his arm. And, and then obviously I think it's um, a lot of people, you know, sort of talked about how chilling it was then in the video to, to see him call out uh, for her. But, but uh, yeah, Mr. Nichols was a, an avid skateboarder. Um, he worked at, at FedEx. Uh, he loved to take photos. He was described also as having a very sort of hearty appetite. I attended a memorial service for him a couple weeks ago. And one of his friends talked about how she joked about how he had a reputation for, for cleaning out his friends' refrigerators mm. um, and, and that he was just a, a, a very good, easygoing, um, spirited individual. Now, what about his family what is their message to the nation yeah they um you know they besides um wanting folks to re to remember their their son in in his joyous moments um they have also uh called for reform um they recently in an interview i believe it was on abc news have asked you know they they've said that um they've praised local officials for bringing swift action against five officers, but they're also now asking um, that others who appear on video uh, potentially face consequences as well. Um, and they've also been very um, sort of adamant in, in um, calling for peaceful demonstrations, which I should stress um, uh, over the, the past several days, demonstrations in, in Memphis have been nothing but peaceful. Mm. Um, and they have also, you know, are hoping um, that Mr. Nichols' death can lead to bigger, bigger reforms. Um, they mentioned, along with their attorney, Ben Crump, uh, a possible law in Tennessee called Tyree's Law that would uh, strengthen um, an officer's duty to intervene. What are you following as this story continues to develop? Right. So there, there have been a lot of... Um, a lot of sort of daily daily updates on this is, you know, we just spoke about the news just coming in about um, this the sixth officer. And, and so, yeah, there, there are lots of questions about what happened that night and if um, those who showed up later acted appropriately, if if um, Mr. Nichols was rendered appropriate care. 
Um, so there's lots of questions now about um, further uh, uh, further consequences, potentially further charges. I should note that the local DA has said that his office that has stressed that this is an ongoing investigation and, and does not preclude any any further charges. Um, and then also, I, I, I should note that a, a funeral for Mr. Nichols is going to be held this Wednesday um, in Memphis to honor his his legacy and um, to provide uh, to help start to provide some some sense of healing for the community. That is Katie Reardon, reporter for WKNO in Memphis. Katie, thanks again for being here and thank you for your reporting. Uh, it was very nice to speak to you. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn all about the contemporary Christian music scene. What's happening with the genre these days? Are you a fan of Christian music? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Contemporary Christian music has inspired and influenced people all across the world. Big names like Amy Grant and C.C. Winans have helped grow Christian music, not only in size and impact, but also in variety. Now artists from all kinds of genres make Christian music. That's right, everything from rock to pop, even hip-hop artists are making songs about their faith. So, who are the big acts on the scene these days? How has CCM changed and developed as people's ways of expressing their faith have changed? My next guest is here to help us in, get us in the know. Bart Millard is a songwriter and lead singer of Mercy Me. He joins me now. Bart, welcome to This Is Nashville. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So you're in a Christian band now. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, what were you listening to when you were growing up? Man, I was kind of a nerd. Like I, uh, I was kind of raised by the church. And so I literally was one of those kids that was obsessed. Like know, I know too much about Christian music over the years. And so I was really a huge product of the system. Never dreamed I'd get to be a part of it, but yeah, it was a massive part coming out of an abusive relationship uh, situation with my father and stuff like it, in some ways it kind of saved my life. Talk about that. How did it save your life? Well, uh, uh, my Walkman, my music was kind of an escape from a rough, uh, a rough upbringing. And, um, uh, it's it always was always taken to church my whole life. And, was literally kind of raised by it all the way from being in a youth group up until, well, still to this day. And, and, uh, it was my escape. And, um, and, and then to see like my father who was diagnosed with cancer, my freshman year in high school, uh, fall in love with Jesus. I saw something much, much bigger than me or this music transforming someone that I didn't know was capable of being transformed. And so mm. it, to say it's, it made a lasting impression in my life would be an understatement. Who were those groups you were rocking in your Walkman back in the day? Oh, man. I mean, you like BB and CC and Amy, Stephen Gersh Chapman, Russ Taff. Um, I kind of got the golden era of music, Steve Taylor. And, and there's the, you know, I graduated high school in 91. And uh, that late 80s, early 90s was like the sweet spot for me in oh. music. Okay. Class of 91 represent. I'm right there Let's with go. you. Let's go. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> so, I mean, did you always want to be a musician as you were growing up? I mean, I, I played a tennis racket and sang in front of the mirror when I was a kid okay. before American Idol. Uh, and so it wasn't probably, or YouTube or anything where it, 
I, you know, I dreamed of it, but never thought it was possible. And my dad always was like, you need to get an eight to five job and be an adult at some point. And, and I thought that I would graduate high school and go to college and, and be like a youth minister because that was probably the single person that made the biggest impression in my life. And so I wanted to be that and, and uh, worked in a church briefly with junior high kids. And, they, and this church, I grew up in a small town outside of Dallas. And so this church that I was working in Florida was the first time I ever saw a live band in a church and, and didn't know much about that. And so I started helping them out and became obsessed with it. Never thought it'd be a career. I thought I'd, you know, I'd, I would be something else and make music on the side. And so I wish I was smart enough to say that I had a plan, but no, it just kind of <laughs> happened. Okay. So it kind of happened. You saw this band yeah. and then all the way to 2001, your band, Mercy Me, had the breakout hit with the song, I Can Only Imagine. Mm -hmm. That puts you front and center of the Christian music scene. In the lyrics, you sing about what it might be like to stand before God in heaven after this life is over. Mm -hmm. Let's take a listen. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in all of you be still? Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I Standing in the sun I can only imagine When all I would do Is forever Forever worship you I can only imagine yeah. Just one note, our executive producer just wrote me and said that she knows every word oh, to this song That's awesome Oh yes Now <laughs> You know, this song, it has a pretty incredible backstory, right? I mean, I think so. Um, it was, um, originally it was written, my father passed away when I was a freshman in college. And a few years later, I actually wrote this song, kind of working through that. It's funny because some people think, man, you really have it all together. And it's like, this song is the complete opposite of that. When you're 19 and people are telling you, well, if your dad could choose, he'd rather be there than here. That's hard for a 19 year old to swallow. And mm -hmm. so a lot of these questions was, or, or, are more like, what's so great that he would prefer this over the, being here with me? And, 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 and so, yeah, so it was me really trying to wrestle with some of these questions. And then we, uh, we started in 94. We were independent up until about 2000. I wrote the song in 99, and that one year, um, I, well, during that year before we signed, we you know, got a call from Amy Grant who wanted to uh, – record the song and we were we were happy with where we were like we we didn't think we we're gonna sign we were doing okay as an independent band didn't want to mess up what we thought was okay and so we said yeah we're like if i ever have kids maybe they'll go to college they kept saying we want this to be like her next kind of el shaddai or whatever mm. and so we told her yes and then we ended up signing a record deal solely based on the ones that wrote amy's next big hit and we get started getting offers and so we signed and the, they had a plan of we're going to sign. Amy's going to make it a huge hit. Well, here they are. And then we're going to, we're off and running. Well, we took about a year to make the record. We finally finished ours and we had a, our version of Imagine was a B side, but we agreed for her to have it as a radio single. So that's all it was going to be. Mm -hmm. 
And she still hadn't finished her album, was taking forever, as she always does. And, uh, and we had to release our album. We were selling less records than we were as independent. Uh, our first single was terrible. And we were like, we're drowning because our plan's out the window. And hmm. somewhere along the way, uh, management got in touch with each other. And we were just asking, is there a plan that this might come out? Because... And then in that, Amy jumped on the phone and said, I think this song is going to change your careers. And she gave it back. Mm. And so we scrambled. Our next single was going out that week. And this is back in the day when you had to burn CDs and yep. send them to the radio. Yeah. And so, it, and they released on a Friday. So Thursday night when she gave it back, we were with our label on the phone calling voicemails all the country, all across the country station saying, don't play it. Our single, give us a week. Okay. So then we spent the weekend burning the CD, sent it out. And the next week it, it released and then it, it went on to be our first number one and, and just uh, it took off, like had no clue what was about to come. That is your major label debut. Right. <laughs> okay, so, you know, back then there was a bunch of Christian rock bands. Mm -hmm. They were releasing worship albums mm -hmm. like Third Day, Skillet, and Sonic Flood. Mm -hmm. Did you think that worship music would ever be as popular on Christian radio as it is now? Um. I, honestly, I did, and because uh, what's crazy is when we started '94 up until we signed, that's all we were. We were doing church camps, and all we did was lead worship. Our first few albums were just cover songs of the popular worship songs. In fact, the one that Imagine was on was our first attempt to write songs that these kids would sing at these camps and that would fit on a PowerPoint screen, that kind of stuff. And Imagine was the last song on it. We didn't play it live for a year because it didn't fit that formula of one verse, one chorus, sing it over for ten minutes, over and over ten minutes, and. And so we did a showcase in 96 in Nashville trying to sign. And we, had, we made this one like rock album. And it was like, or that was original stuff. And we did the showcase at a church we were playing at here and it had the youth groups. Like, we told them, whatever you do, scream like we're the Beatles and we're done because these labels <laughs> need to think that we're a big deal. Okay. So we went through our whole album of these songs of ours that weren't worship. Well, the kids did their job too well. They kept cheering and won encore. And we're like, stop it. We don't have any more songs. And they stopped, <laughs> kept cheering. So we went up during the encore and did all the worship songs we do with these kids every week. And I remember we got to this one worship song and we leave the stage. And it's kind of like this U240 moment. They keep singing it over and over long after we left the stage. It was a very emotional thing like, oh, this is what we're supposed to be doing. Mm. And about the time labels started working their way backstage and a lot of them said, hey, everything was great except that encore, like, like there was like integrity would have been one of the few labels that were actually do vineyard back then that were selling worship songs, but not radio, not these main labels. And so they're like everything, but the worship was cool. I don't know what we really do with that. And I was kind of offended by it because that was absolutely the most moving part of the night. Mm. And so we had lived in Nashville for a year trying to make it. And that, after that realized we were going to, we were leaving town and I had a meeting with uh, what eventually became a manager. And I was telling him, Hey man, we're we're out. We're gonna go do this on our own still. And he goes, Why? And I said, Man, if somebody would actually write worship songs or cover worship songs and and package them, market them like Jesus Freak by DC Talk or all these big albums, I promise you it would blow up huge. And so he calls Goatee Records and tell is trying to tell him, like, I wanna be that person. I was like, No, 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 I'm out. But if somebody does that, Six months later, Sonic Flood came out. I'm not saying I had anything to do with it, but then that, that album did exactly uh -huh. that, and it blew up huge. Okay, so tell me, what is the difference between worship music and contemporary Christian music? That's a great question. I think um, um, I, I think worship music, and more specifically, specifically like a corporate worship music, there are some songs that, that are 
are that are vertically written to and about God. And when I say corporate worship, I think there are some that will will hone in more on like is the melody where you can sing along to it. Is it easy to sing? Is it something where, you know, I mean, the, where the crowd can engage completely. And then contemporary Christian, man, I mean, we can sing about a lot of things, but there's definitely ways that I write that stuff. Like a, like I'd say Steve Taylor's the, one of the kings at it of writing clever, quirky lyrics that I would still say in some level of worship, but we're not considering, can the crowd sing along to this? Are we trying mm-hmm. to get them to join in like it's a Manchester football game or whatever? But it's just, you're, it's more of art to me and more, you know, uh, and that's, yeah, we were a worship band for years. And when we signed, our label intentionally put like said, we're not going to label, label you as a worship band because that didn't sell much. And so we started writing and trying to create our music to where it's more, I know there's stuff you listen to and there's stuff you sing along with. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure other people can define it differently. But when I think of worship music these days, it's the corporate worship, the ones that ever the churches will sing forever that I feel like are huge right now. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kali Olekalona. We're talking this hour about the current state of the contemporary Christian music industry. Join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. Now, my next guest also has an extensive history with Christian music. Steven Taylor is a producer, musician, and filmmaker. He's the founder of the record label Squint Entertainment and an assistant professor at Lipscomb University. Steve, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Khalil. It's quite a resume. <laughs> you know, I, I understand that, like, back in the day, you moved to L.A. in the early 80s to pursue a career in music. Tell me, what kind of music were you making back then? Yeah, so I was going to Colorado University in Boulder at the time and listening to The Clash and Sex Pistols and punk rock. And um, But I was also a youth pastor at the same time, and so I was interested in how do I better communicate what I'm trying to teach my youth group um, in a way that's musically, you know, modern. Mm-hmm. So I ended up recording songs that were kind of punk, new wave influenced, and they weren't certainly weren't worship songs, but they were uh, had to do a lot with my faith. And um my barber in Boulder knew a publisher and he said, hey, you should go meet him. And he liked the stuff. So he sent me to L.A. to meet with some mainstream record labels, Warner Brothers and Arista and people like that. And their response for the most part was, well, we like this music. It's really interesting. But these lyrics, they're kind of kind of quirky and kind of snarky and satirical. And they talk about Jesus sometimes, like, we like your music, but we think your lyrics would offend our listeners. Hmm. So I thought, oh, well, if it's the Christian content, I just need to go talk to Christian record labels. And they listened to the music, and their reaction was, we don't like your music, and we think your lyrics would offend our listeners. Hmm. And that's pretty much how I've lived ever since. (laughs) Okay, so let's listen to this. I want to be a clone from your 1983 debut of the same name.
Okay, was there anyone making music like this in the Christian world at the time? I think, I don't think there probably was. Uh, there was a band that I liked a lot called Daniel Amos. They had started kind of experimenting with, you know, kind of punk and new wave, but this was probably the first project of its type that uh, caught on in a relatively big way. To me, it feels like young people now, young people love nostalgia. They love going back in yes. the day. Are you a hit with like the Gen Zers and millennials? I, I have no idea. That song sounds so old and so... You know, frankly, yeah, it doesn't sound very sophisticated these days, but, you know, the kids, they like uh, they like the old school new wave, I guess, maybe. Yeah, yeah, it works. <laughs> now, you know, were you discouraged that industry folks really didn't get where you were coming from? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a big surprise, but it was just, there was, you know, most record labels, they like to follow what's already being done, mm -hmm. and they don't like to take chances, and... A sort of similar story to Bart's. Um, I was invited to sing at a um, sort of a showcase up in uh, the Rocky Mountains at Estes Park and uh, do two songs. And um, <laughs> I had a lot of friends come up and the word got around, make a lot of noise. And I performed these two songs. They were definitely something that that group hadn't heard before. And the crowd reacted really strongly. And the head of the record label, I don't know if he got it or not, but he saw that the people in the audience were getting it. So he actually met me at the side of the stage afterwards and signed me to a record deal. So that's ultimately how I got going. He met you on the side of the stage. Was it one of those situations where he like gave you the contract bent over and you signed it on his back? Almost not quite there, but pretty much he said, I want to do a deal. And, and we did a deal a few days later. Okay. Matt, <laughs> you've gone on to produce some really big Christian crossover artists, most notably Sixpence, None the Richer, the band behind this late 90s hit. I'm betting a lot of our listeners will recognize. Let's take a listen. Right, that's the song Kiss Me. Now, I, I think something noteworthy about this band is that not a lot of people knew that they were a CCM band. Was that a part of their success, in your opinion? Well, that was all done very intentionally. So I started the label just because I was doing a fair bit of producing at the time, and Sixpence came to me and wanted me to produce their next record. And they were on an independent Christian label, and then the label went bankrupt right before we started recording the album. So I used credit cards to make the album and they didn't trust anybody. So they asked me if I would start a record label to put the music out. And I did. And it, you know, took a while, but it ended up becoming a massive worldwide pop hit. Uh, it was a long story between that two, but um, uh, they were kind of in a similar place where they loved God and they were fellow Christians, but they didn't want their music to just be confined to the church. Mm -hmm. And so that was really the the mission behind Squint is almost using Christian music as like a farm team. And how do we get a, a, a band like this that's great to the majors? Now, have you ever seen a Christian band kind of go big like that before since Sixpence? 
Yes, it had been, Jars of Clay had mm -hmm. just come out with a, a record that had a big hit called Flood. And, you know, Amy Grant had kind of led it back in the day when she became a big crossover artist. So mm -hmm. it didn't happen a lot, but, you know, in many ways, Bart's uh, song, I Can Only Imagine, was also a big crossover hit. So it, it happens every once in a while. It's not a common occurrence. Okay, so the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, we saw a lot of changes in the music business. Stopped selling CDs, started selling CDs and went to digital mm -hmm. um, and kind of away from tapes and things like that. How, Bart, how did that affect the genre? How did the move from analog listening to a digital platform affect contemporary Christian music? I think it affected us like everyone else there's kind of this there was this kind of ongoing i don't know if it's a joke or whatever for years long I've, we've been mercy for 28 years and we've always heard that you know there was a time when it was like whatever was big and mainstream give it about 10 years it'll show up in christian music and hmm. and it, because a lot of times you would have people going you know that was you know you talked about you know in the 80s these kids love this kind of music well some people are more intentional about well if you like this i'll do the same thing but change the lyrics and everybody had their different approaches and with uh with us i mean we um yeah we've i guess we've had the the we've been experiencing all the changes like we CDs were you know 20 dollars a pop and yeah. big long cardboard boxes yeah, and yeah. you would stand in line and try to get them and, and and when they were out you know i think that's why street week that opening week was always been such a huge impression of like that sets the tone if you sell a ton that first week you know you're on your way or whatever and so we kind of, that's where we started. And then, you know, Napster happens and it, and the digital downloads takes place. And what's interesting with that is that, you know, we were selling a lot of CDs and, and um, the way our record deal was set up, it was more of a partnership. We went with a smaller label and we both, you know, pitched in. And if it won, we would all win huge. If it didn't, we were, it was going to tank pretty fast. Mm. So we were directly impacted when CD sales started to, to dwindle and go into digital where nobody knew what they were getting paid at first. And, uh, but a lot of artists, a generic record deal, they may not see much off of album sales to begin with. And so I think for majority of artists, the progression to where we are now, I think was a good thing because the best part about it is music's getting from the artist to the fan faster than ever. Mm -hmm. And back then it was like, if you were lucky to have a record deal, the mystique behind making an actual album was in the hands of the label, the big budget and stuff. Man, my son's making albums that sound better than ours in his walk-in closet right now. <laughs> and so that's, and, but yeah, but Napster takes place, digital downloads, the iPod shows up and things start changing. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I've always heard like uh, from albums to eight tracks to cassettes to CDs, they say there's about a, a decade in between roughly. I don't know if that's true or not. I've heard that. Man, from digital downloads to subscription like streaming I, it feels like it was about two to three years like it changed over so fast where no one was paying a dollar not 29 mm -hmm. for a song anymore they were just subscribing to it yeah and so that shifted like crazy and and it's been a it's been we're definitely a little bit of the old guard to where it's it's just things are different and you can either complain about how it used to be and how labels took advantage of artists and or you you figure out a new way to do it, mm -hmm. and I think it's going in the right direction. It's it's a there's a lot of people that would never have a chance to make music that are getting to getting a chance to do it, whether it's good or bad. They at least can try, and there's room for them, I guess. Mm -hmm. But it's we've seen every change possible. Yeah, yeah. Bart Millard is a songwriter and lead singer of Mercy Me. Bart, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you. Steve Taylor will stick with us through the break. When we come back, we'll learn how Christian music came to find a home here in Nashville. Join the conversation and tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back.
I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. This hour, we've been exploring the world of contemporary Christian music. This genre has fans across the globe, and it's been growing in popularity for decades thanks to artists like Amy Grant and CeCe Winans. Over the years, the creative minds in contemporary Christian music have called Nashville home. How did that come to be? Who are the people responsible for bringing Christian music to Music City? My next guest is one of those people. Brown Bannister is a producer and songwriter for some of the biggest names in CCM. He's also director of the School of Music at Liscombe University. Brown, thank you so much for being here and welcome to This Is Nashville. Uh, thanks, Khalil. Really appreciate talking to you. So tell me quickly, how did you get your start in the industry? Well, it's, it's, it was all totally unintentional. Um, I was a pre-med major. I had a friend who moved uh, to Nashville to be in the music business. And sort of the trajectory, the arc of, of how I got involved was I moved, I kind of followed him up to Nashville uh, in 1972. I really, I would say I really became a Christian. I It moved the whole idea moved from religion to relationship. Mm. Then in 1974, I was on the West Coast at a wedding. And for the first time, I heard the original Jesus music, love song, Andre Crouch, Barry McGuire, Keith Green, second chapter of Acts. And then in 1976, while being a youth a volunteer youth pastor in Nashville at Belmont Church, um, I got the opportunity to just be put in the chair, engineering and ultimately producing records. Amy Grant was in my youth group. She played me some songs one day, wanted me to help her record them for her great grandmother's 90th birthday. Hmm. And I did that, made a cassette. I took it to my friend who had just signed a production deal with Word Records. He said, hey, I think there's something there. He, he phoned up um, Stan Mosier at Word Records in Waco, Texas, played this 14-year-old girl's song over the phone. Stan said, hey, let's sign her. I mean, it was it really wow. happened like that. Man. And so he turned, to, he turned to me and said, hey, do you want to produce this? And that's how I became a producer. Okay. And you've been Amy Grant's producer since then. And she's probably the best-known Christian artist of all time. And here's a song you produced with her, Angels, from the 1984 album Straight Ahead, which won a Grammy for Best Gospel Vocal Performance Female. Let's listen. Then a light cut through the darkness of a lonely prison cell And the chains that bound the man of God just opened up and fell And running to his people before the break of day There was only one thing on his mind So, Brown, tell me, how did it feel to see this young woman you've known since she was a kid in your youth group become this big Grammy award-winning star? Well, Khalil, it, 
I mean, it was amazing. I don't think any of us realized what we were on the brink of. Uh, I always say Amy and I, in, in terms of music and music production and development, Amy and I kind of grew up together. Mm-hmm. I didn't really know what I was doing. She didn't know what she was doing. But but there was just a burning desire to share a message. And uh, this, this new genre of contemporary Christian music uh, was kind of the perfect vehicle. Now, on that note, I you, think, know, you, you, you did 20 albums together over the course of 30 years. Tell me, what was the Christian music scene like here when you got started? It was amazing. Uh, uh, it, it was amazing at how primitive it was, I should say. There were no ticketed concerts. Uh, There's a uh, actually a store. It's now a coffee shop called Koinonia Bookstore. And that was a place where uh, some of these West Coast artists and artists doing the early artists in, in CCM would come and play there. And you might have 50 people there. You might, if you packed it out, you might have a hundred, but basically that's how Christian music started from a performance standpoint. It was really just kind of traveling around the country and popping into church, popping into Christian bookstore. And that, that was really kind of the essence of the way it was shared. Initially, we had one, one radio station in Nashville, WNAZ and you know, they played some music and they also played, you know, preachers on their station. So it was um, it was kind of uh, very primitive at the beginning. OK, so as it evolves, who led the move and the movement to bring the CCM basically headquarters to Nashville? You know, I can't I can't totally uh, accurately, I guess, answer that question. But what happened was, uh, as as we were doing records, uh, Chris Christian and I were doing records on B.J. Thomas and Debbie Boone and Amy and the Imperials, and and the contemporary Christian music started being being produced here more. Uh, I believe the first label that was out of town. Word Records was the first one to open a, an office here and put an A&R person in it, Mike Blanton, who later became Amy's manager. And then uh, Sparrow Records on the West Coast. It really, Billy Ray Hearn had started Sparrow Records, and uh, they ultimately moved a guy named Peter York here to Nashville. Then Star Song moved. And so it was first, it was just... Um, labels that were already existing and doing well were opening up offices here and i think just the act the absolute volume of stuff that started being produced here and i would say the quality of life in nashville it was good for families and raising families and i think a lot of these people you know who were christian people viewed nashville as a, a really great place to be and raise a family as well as you know being in the music business. So I think I think it was just kind of an amalgamation of that. Uh, some people trying to escape L.A. because it was getting kind of cra- crazy out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and and at at some point, it just it was sort of the 800 pound gorilla in the industry. So it just made sense for everybody to base their operations out of here. 
So there's a big CCM boom in the 1980s, right around the same time yeah. that there's a country music renaissance with Reba McIntyre and even some in the 90s with Garth Brooks. How much did, did the success of those two genres have to do with each other? Actually, they had very little to do with each other. Um, yeah, I always say that, you know, I worked in the in in production in Christian music for 45 years. I produced a couple of country artists, but mainly I did contemporary Christian music. And I always said that thought that the the two genres, country and Christian, for the most part, were siloed. And the people that did country music it was kind of one crowd, and the people that produced Christian music, it was another crowd. Now that's changed over the years, but Early on, when both industries were booming, uh, I think it, it what happened was musicians started moving from other areas, Atlanta, from uh, New York, from L.A. And so it, it kind of became this creative uh, nirvana. Mm. I guess that's not a great word to use in terms of Christian music, but it did. It, it became this amazing place of amazing talent and musicians mm -hmm. and the songwriting. Uh, that happened in Nashville. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, there's definitely more more mixing and mingling of players and producers and and artists uh, that are collaborating more now. But when when the things were booming, it was just part of the overall, uh, I think, attraction um, of people moving to the city because great things were happening here. Mm -hmm. Now, I would like to say that this is Nashville as a non-denominational show. So, the word Nirvana totally fits. Now, CCM producer Steve <laughs> Taylor, he's still with us. Let's let's talk about the business real quick, because at the end of the day, this is an industry. You got to put forth artists. Everybody's got to eat. You got to make music that will sell. How do you balance that with the message of the lyrics? Yeah, well, I haven't always done such a great job of doing that. <laughs> I was, you know, I I was skeptical of anything once it becomes an institution and once it becomes an institution it's easy for those things to become self-perpetuating and next thing you know it's money that's driving everything um on the other hand uh having worked in both christian music and in mainstream music um i still preferred the generally the people that i was working with in christian music seem to at least have some some backstops uh mm. there's things they wouldn't do whereas mm. i didn't necessarily find that to be the case with a lot of the people i worked with the pop labels um and i i think the thing about christian music that's so bizarre is it's the only genre of music that's strictly defined by its lyrics mm. so within that there's all kinds of different genres within Christian music, but the lyrics are kind of the thing that defines it. And I think the one thing that the industry did, um, they, they, for good and for bad, is, you know, if you're doing a Christian album, you're not probably going to have any profanity on it or probably anything that's uh, too graphic or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, and generally that's probably a good thing even when i had like a my own label we had signed a the hip hop group and they were fantastic um um but you know we had to make some calls based on the lyrics as well and so uh it, the the industry part of it um sometimes became the tail that wagged the dog uh but it also changed in the 90s and the 2000s too the 
Christian music industry now really is about serving the church, whereas in the 80s and 90s, it, had, it didn't really have a ceiling. Oh, we didn't know where it's going. I want to ask you about that. I got like a minute and a half left. You said that Christian music is about really serving the church. Well, there's a question like, who is Christian music for? Yeah. Well, I think in the 80s and 90s, we thought it could be could go anywhere. And um, when I started my label, that was kind of the idea is I would love to see these acts, you know, achieve some worldwide notoriety. Um, I think somewhere in the 2000s, they decided, the industry decided really are what we do is specifically for the church mm -hmm. and became less interested in sort of a, a larger reach. Brown, what do you think? Is Brown still with us? I can, I can do hey, my Brown impersonation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're going to impersonate. Yeah. Brown, question for you. Got about 30 seconds left. Who is Christian music for? Man, I tell you, um, I mean, there is a huge movement now in the worship movement. And uh, what Steve said about it being for the church, it's really serving the church. You know, any of the big artists like in, in worship music, Chris Tomlin, uh, Phil, um, gosh, there's so many. Uh, but but Chris Tomlin would be here on Sunday mornings. Uh, he's heard and his songs are sung in more venues than any huge, massive pop star would ever think about playing in. Mm. So it's, it is a massive reach. And I think it really is more for the church, although uh, I think there's a resurgence of people who are telling stories and, and more of a narrative uh, intersection of faith and life. I think there's a resurgence of that. Okay, right we'll now. see. That is Christian music producer Brown Bannister. He was joined by fellow producer Steve and Taylor. I want to thank you both for being with us today. Really appreciate it. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, from contemporary Christian music to the blues, we'll learn how the forebearer of jazz, R&B, and hip-hop is being preserved here in Tennessee. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. The masterminds behind our theme music are Laurent and Amir Blade. Special thanks to Kim Brewer. And the conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. In fact, tweet us your favorite Christian music song. And find us on Instagram and let us know what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other. <laughs>